Here lies my dog ate my book report. They were not obedient. A podcast where two weirdo 30-somethings take turns introducing each other to a formative book from childhood the other has never read. I'm Ren, they, them, and I am the one subjecting everyone to this book this time. Uh, and I'm Brandon, he, him, and I, uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, morning. This is apparently our final episode. Podcast is dead. Dead and buried. <laughs> It was thematic, death, Brandon. Death is the is the end, as we know. There is nothing after that. That is not accurate, according to Stephen King. Yeah. So yes, today we will be discussing Pet Cemetery by Stephen King, which is quite obviously a me pick, and also this is, I think, one of the first. This is definitely not for children books. Don't let your kid read this, even though I read it when I was nine. I feel like everything else so far has been, you could give this to a kid. This this one, don't. Yeah, I mean, even the, the stuff that we have read that wasn't technically written for children wasn't necessarily, Yeah. didn't necessarily have a ton of stuff going on in it that would have been <laughs> inappropriate or challenging. Oh, good golly. Well. At least not until robots are a consistent part of our culture and, and have like personhood and stuff. And then, then the robot trilogy might have some stuff in it, but. Is frowned upon, but uh, we're not there yet. <laughs> I'm gonna just like jump out of the gate before the book synopsis with the content warnings for this book. Yeah, it's probably the best because there's a lot. Uh, there's a, a number of sex scenes that get fairly graphic. Uh, there's a lot of talk of death. It's you know inherent in the entire theme. There's a lot. There's death scenes. There's a fair amount of gore. There is animal death. There is child death. There's infidelity. There's problematic white guy depictions of Native American mysticism. This is probably not an exhaustive list, but, you know, there's there's a start. Passing mention of other racial stereotypes. So Lewis Creed, the protagonist, sort of, um, he's a doctor. He has just moved his family to Maine because he got a job at the University of Maine as their resident doctor. They're they're from Chicago. I don't know if it's like really super relevant. I don't know much about Chicago, so. But everything gets pretty grim pretty quickly. Their cat gets run over by trucks on the road. Just one truck. Just one truck. Only one truck ran it's... over the cat, I think. I yes. yeah. And it actually never even said it was a truck necessarily. It could have been I mean, a truck. It was, it was definitely a truck. The implication of a truck. Yeah. It's, just, it's hard to synopsize this book. His friendly good old boy across the street neighbor, Judd, brings him to the pet cemetery up the hill. And then beyond the pet cemetery up the hill where there is a Native American burial ground, which got tainted somehow it's a little nebulous they bury the cat the cat comes back to life but the cat comes back weird and then other people die like humans and there is some debate about whether or not it's a good idea to bury them suffice to say our protagonist goes quite frankly insane and does that and then there's more death and everything's terrible. That's my synopsis of this book. Yeah, like, there's actually not a lot of things happen in it. 
but it is still long. It is quite long. Because, yeah, it's really just they move to a new place. Uh, uh, the cat dies. Lewis's daughter's sad because it's her cat. The new neighbor is like, hey, you're in luck. You happen to move adjacent to a magical pet cemetery where things come back if you bury them there. And uh, we're for the cat. And then other tragedy is fixed by the, via the cemetery as well, but it goes wrong because that is better. Right. Yep. Just zombies are never a good idea. There, there is mention of the, the force that is behind why all of this stuff goes wrong um, is something that I know that we as white people are not allowed to say. Um, it is a W word. Oh, wait, and really? Yeah. Like, if you, like, you're, it's, I've, I've read that you aren't really even allowed to say the word because saying it is, like, incredibly bad, uh, you know, can summon it or uh. is bad luck, like, multiple interpretations of it. But the general consensus I've seen online is that you're not even supposed to say it. It is said a lot in the book. Um, yeah, I've never, I've never heard that it was problematic uh, to say because there's it's used in a lot of fiction. Which, granted, yeah, it's it's that that itself is appropriation, and it's usually not very accurate. Yeah, so this uh, thing, which is often used as like a cryptid type thing, is something that is very prevalent in certain uh, native spiritual practices and such it, it it is given as probably the the reason why the soil is tainted in this this pet cemetery and why things come back wrong yeah which um i know i i looked this up at the time because the depiction of this of this entity in this novel is different than what i'm used to from other things that that have been based upon it and uh so i wasn't really sure i was like are any of these even close to the actual folklore and stuff and the answer is no yeah I my most recent interaction with, with this thing is in fallout 76 it's a very prevalent uh, monster that you fight all over the place in that yeah. game so it, it, yeah and it's become there's a lot of like horror stuff both film and tv that that has has a version of this and then like there's a marvel comics character named after this oh wow but but apparently uh stephen king's interpretation is most likely derived uh from some earlier fiction uh you know again by i think white people possibly uh august derlis the thing that walked on the wind mm. anyway all that to say usually the book is just talking about sort of the the force of the cemetery, like the cemetery itself is an entity or that, that it may or may not be one with this creature. Yeah, it was, you know, the, the big parts with, that involved it were definitely at the point where Lewis was completely 
has completely just lost it. Mm-hmm. So he thinks it's chasing him at some point and et cetera, et cetera. So he's a highly unreliable narrator by that point. I mean, he becomes a pretty unreliable narrator really fairly early, but still. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, before I get into the reasoning of like, why did I read this when I was nine? I did want to touch on the, <laughs> this is not the first time that Stephen King has used Native American mysticism to create some horror aspect to one of his books or or to have like you know the good guy force be some mostly butchered native american mythology sort of situation it i'm not going to excuse him because he's definitely like talked about how maybe he shouldn't have done some of those things (laughs) i read this book because my parents were at my grandparents' house and they watched the movie. So this was probably around 1989, 1990. I don't have a good like wiggle room. I don't have a good like yeah. grasp on exactly when this was. The movie was what, 89? Yeah, so this is probably 1990. Oh no. If this was, you know, when it came out on VHS, so 1990, 1991, maybe, I was younger than nine. Wow, me. I have a problem. Anyway, they kicked me out of the room. And I always thought it was really rude to watch movies that the kids weren't allowed to watch in the only living room. So they they would send me and my little brothers to this finished room in the basement, which is where, you know, the kids' play space was. And I was just so mad. There were a lot of movies they wouldn't let me watch. But the really great thing about Stephen King was if they wouldn't let me watch the movies... I could go to the library because they didn't monitor what I read. They didn't care what I read. They just saw me in a corner reading a book and they were like, yeah, reading is fundamental. So I'm like maybe seven, eight, nine, who knows, reading Pet Cemetery. I, of course, was, you know, very engaged, partially, probably because it was something I wasn't supposed to be taking in. And also just because horror is like, I don't know, even more magical and mysterious when you're a child. <laughs> um, I very quickly just started ingesting a lot of the Stephen King that was available. That was the start of my Stephen King obsession from the age of, I don't know, eight to 16, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, on the other hand, uh, had never read a Stephen King novel prior to this book. Did you read On Writing? Were, yeah, but that's not a novel. It's it's a nonfiction. Oh, right. And I had just... Let's see. So this is probably where I confess to a little bit of a shame, a secret shame, not really all that secret shame. I was mm-hmm. I was just, like, really, really cowardly as a child <laughs> horror the and the idea of horror movies and horror books freaked me out without me having to see any of them or read any of them um i was even when i was young despite being at like 
the exact correct age for the Goosebumps series when it started and when it was like as huge as as it ever was going to be. And I had a lot of friends reading Goosebumps. I was too afraid to try any of them. Oh, no. Which is ridiculous because they aren't scary. So, you know, needless to say, I, I also was in no rush to read Stephen King uh, at any point in my life, really, because by the time I was like, oh, no, horror, I, I actively like horror. It's kind of good. Um, I would look at them and be like, those are too long. <laughs> One of the things that I found very true to main life was the roads. The the town of Ludlow, where the book takes place, doesn't actually exist. It's a stand-in for any of the little small towns that are around Orono and Bangor, which is the area where the, the college is that does actually exist, that the main character was the doctor for. Um, but I, I grew up in one of those small towns around Bangor, which mostly just consists of you know, a street that doesn't have a street name. It's just Route whatever. It's Route 5 in this book, I think. Mine growing up was uh, 202 and 9. But anyway. Um, and the trucks were real. They would just barrel down these roads without a care for the fact that, you know, there's kids biking, there's kids playing, they're all over the place. Uh, we lost countless cats to these trucks. And unfortunately horribly uh my childhood dog i actually saw it get hit oh uh i just happened to glance out the window at the right time and i kind of still to this day get really angry at my parents <laughs> for not keeping a better eye on my pets but i didn't really know any better when i was a tiny child that you know pets should not be outside mm-hmm so that definitely resonated with me. We did not have a magical cemetery to bury them in. I thought about that a lot while we were rereading it. Yeah, I would imagine so. I have I have never really experienced like tragic pet death. All of my pets have just like lived to a relatively old age and died of natural causes. Well, your parents are responsible pet owners. <laughs> yeah, generally speaking, I suppose. So, I, I mean, I definitely had a lot of thoughts while I reread this. This is possibly one of the only Stephen King books that I read at a very young age that I've never reread. Uh-huh. I have a couple in my rotation that I reread periodically every couple of years. Like, I'll go back and reread It and The Stand and a number of other ones fairly regularly. But this one I just never reread. And I was trying to sort of think about why. And... I think when I was a kid, I didn't see it as as scary and interesting as some of the other ones. Maybe because, you know, the main character was not relatable to me as a tiny child. And, you know, the characters in It, they're all children, so they're much easier to sort of identify with when you're a child reading it. But I also think that maybe I didn't find death as upsetting when I was a tiny child because it was way more abstract concept than now as an adult where you know death is looming <laughs> maybe maybe that's why i don't know it just never occurred to me to go back and reread it i also never went and 
spite watched the movie until last week. Oh. And the movie was not good. <laughs> I I caught the movie on TV at some point in high school, probably on the sci-fi channel. And I watched it. And so I, I remembered a handful of like core elements to the story, but not not much in particular and not enough that I can really articulate like how well I think the movie did or did not adapt the book. Yeah. So as a whole, I actually mostly enjoyed the book and I didn't feel like it felt like it was as long as it was. So my, my general distaste for longer books is because oftentimes I just kind of am ready to be done with a story after a certain point on average. And I was expecting that to be kind of a chore with this one, but it wasn't. I found it pretty readable, even though the contents sometimes I had like plot notes. But something that I wanted, and I know that this is like a fine line to walk with horror, but I kept waiting for there to be a little more of an explanation for things. And there's wasn't. And I know that you don't necessarily want to like get to the end of your horror story by telling everybody the exact mechanics of everything supernatural happening or whatever. But I felt like this book didn't maybe didn't get quite far enough because it feels like the book starts leaning on the notion that the cemetery, you know, kind of manipulates people supernaturally somehow. And, like, that's why, for example, Judd even tells Lewis about the cemetery in the first place is theoretically this notion that Judd kind of had to. But at a certain point, it just started to be like, oh, I feel like maybe this situation isn't being set up organically. The characters are just all acting very stupid in this situation, and there's not a good reason for it, so the cemetery did it, you know? That's a good point. I I feel like the town itself being sort of this entity that is manipulative in a way is a theme that he explores to much greater effect in it. And I actually didn't stop to see whether or not which one he wrote first. Oh, okay, yes. He he wrote it after Pet Cemetery. So I'm not going to like sit here and posit what Stephen King may have been thinking, but I feel like Maybe he took that theme of this mysterious entity manipulating the entire town around it and just pulled on that way better for it. Yeah. And like, I don't feel like that was really a thing. I don't think he was trying to use that as the core theme of the book here, certainly. So I I understand that it didn't. It wasn't something he was digging into as much as things like how we deal with death. But yeah, it just from a plot standpoint, I felt like I needed a little more of something to get me across the hurdle, especially in the climax of why everybody was, you know, it's that cliche about how characters in horror movies are just very stupid sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like just habitually, because that's the only way that they would end up in situations that they're vulnerable to the whatever. <laughs> and I kind of felt that way with this book because it's sort of it treats it like they're that the, you know the cemetery is linked to some like primal force of the universe, right? Like mm-hmm. 
it's treated as a, as a thing like okay the the Mick Max knew that it did that and had some beliefs about it but that like the force is even older than that right um <laughs> and so it just can do things and the things that it can do are make everybody not tell each other what they're going to do or what is happening in their <laughs> brains or basic facts that might help them not die uh, or meet other, some other kind of tragic end. Um, and like, I, I find that, that sort of pacing uh, very interesting when I think about what I retained when I read it, because my impression going into this was that the book was going to start. They were going to set up a little bit. The cat was going to die pretty much immediately. And the book was going to make you think, that the cat was the bad guy. But then very quickly, the kid was going to die and they were going to go with all that. But in reality, the, the pacing of the book was huge amount of setup. That guy dying in his office, the cat dies eventually. Judd story time, cemetery, cat action, cat's weird for like 100 pages way too much detail about Rachel and Lewis's sex life. And then what, like the last 75 pages are the actual like meat of the problem. Yeah. I mean, it takes him like the, the penultimate hundred pages or so to decide that he's going to dig gauge up and then also to dig gauge up the, the him in the, in the graveyard. Um, and like getting over the fence and stuff. It felt to me like that was literally 20% of the book getting over that fence it (laughs) it it was a hard part to get through so the interesting thing because because i like i said i I had seen the movie ages and ages ago and i remember the core plot points of cat dies cat gets buried in the cemetery and resurrected child dies same thing uh and then kills everybody i remembered like those the, the, the core beats and so for one thing, because of the length of the book, I assumed that the movie was just one of those things that like cuts things out entirely in like large swaths as far as plot's concerned. And I think the only stuff, the only like substantive stuff the movie, as I recall, cuts out is like, I don't feel like it really dealt much with people who had used the cemetery prior because the book does, does give us a decent amount of background. No, they, they... They do actually go mm. into that for for a bit. They tell it all wrong and weird in the movie. Um, mm. Yeah, so I'm just not remembering that. The major things that they cut out in the movie uh, is just inner monologue. Yeah, that's obviously. But that's so important. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it translates well to a movie at all because you don't get to really understand why Lewis is doing the things he's doing. Yeah, at all. He just goes from like, I'm stoic doctor man to I'm talking to myself and digging up my dead son just with no nothing to to give you any amount of why. Yeah. But speaking of why, why does the cat come back and the cat's just kind of clumsy and a little weird? But when people come back, they just want to murder people. I'm I'm okay with horror things giving us very little explanation for stuff, but I did just want a little bit of explanation for that because they can talk, they can explain. The animal can't explain, but the humans could have explained. 
Yeah, and like it's another thing. It's another thing that like characters intimate stuff. Like Judd tells Lewis early on that like you can kind of if you if you do it with a pet, with an animal, the animal's going to come back a little off. But if you're if you're willing to accept that and the smell, it's fine. But if you do it with a person, it's going to be bad. And I assumed that. I sort of filled in the blanks of that situation with the assumption that something, something, people have a more complex soul or some greater connection to the whatever that is behind everything. Or, uh, like, when people are, are used, are brought back by the cemetery, they have that whole demon possession y thing where they know secrets they, there would be no way for them to know about people. Mm um and stuff so i think i kind of just when those ideas were presented and then not really filled in more by the book i just sort of inserted demons the book never goes into the whys of that much much like it doesn't go into you know how how the cemetery compels people to do things like share knowledge of it like this is something that i also noted the dead guy whose name I can't remember, the guy who dies early on. Oh, Vincent Pascoe. Yeah. Like you said, he he dies fairly early and is like for a decent chunk of the beginning of the book, kind of the major plot point that happens because, you know, it affects Lewis because Lewis was trying to save him, but he was beyond saving and everything. And like, yeah, that's, that's going to stick with you, uh, even if you're a doctor and probably have seen people die before. Well, he he seemed like he was a pretty fresh doctor. Yeah. And this kid, Vincent Pascal, on Lewis's very first day of work when he's touring the new offices, this kid comes in having been jogging with friends and had been hit by a car. Yeah. And just dies in Lewis's arms. Yeah. But he visits Lewis in a dream, right? And and I think as, as the book progresses further, it, it seemed like... It seemed to me like the implication was meant to be that it was genuinely like his ghost or something. It wasn't just a random dream because he visits Ellie in her dreams later on. Right. But he he he's he does this thing where he like in in a dream shows Lewis the cemeteries back there and stuff. And I was like, wait a second. And and he and he, he he shows it to Lewis, but he says like, don't don't do anything with it. Just don't. Bad idea. And I'm kind of like, if you hadn't visited Lewis in his dream, would any of this have happened? (laughs) I guess Judd would probably have told him about the cemetery. But I don't know. It felt to me at the time, Pascal's attempt to warn Lewis not to do the thing is the thing that made Lewis think doing the thing was worthwhile to do. Well, he says, uh, Stephen King being, says, Right before the scene where Victor Pascoe dies, this is where Lewis, when he thought back on it, realized the nightmare truly started. Yeah. Yeah. And I just kind of was like, why, why did this occur? Like, why, (laughs) why this visitation? Because it, it, and I think later on is still intimated that maybe the cemetery made this happen also. But yeah, it just sort of feels like it felt to me like the order of operations was Pascal dies. Pascal 
is so concerned to tell Lewis not to use the cemetery that he tells Lewis not to use the cemetery because if he did, something might happen that he'll think is good, but he shouldn't. And it sort of felt like telling a teenager not to do a thing that the teenager didn't realize wasn't allowed until you told them. Yeah, don't look in that box in my closet, honey. Like, Yeah. Oh, now I'm spoiled on my Christmas presents. And, and so I was, I was kind of like, I don't know if this is... This is either the cemetery manipulating uh, either Pascal's like soul or just Lewis's dreams, right? But using reverse psychology. <laughs> um, but if it's a cemetery, why would Pascal visit Ellie? I kind of felt like, yeah, like like Pascal seemed to be operating somewhat benevolently later on because he starts visiting Ellie in her dreams. Yeah, but he makes her go completely batshit, which is why I think one of the reasons why Rachel was so susceptible to rushing back, thinking there was something very, very wrong. Oh, I see. Which led, which led to Rachel's death. So I feel like, I feel like book Pascal is bad. However, movie, movie Pascal, they turn Pascal into Pascal the Friendly Ghost. He has a way bigger role. He's all throughout the book. And he physically guides Rachel back to town, like finds her a flight, helps her hitchhike. Like, it's ridiculous. He's just there the whole time. I have no recollection of that. That sounds kind of fun. It's bad. I was I was laughing so hard. So like in the movie, he's like benevolently trying to help. (laughs) It's so weird. So I read I read his interactions with Ellie as having the side effect of making Ellie seem crazy and and making Rachel concerned about Ellie. But that wasn't because of Pascal. That was because of Lewis gaslighting her. Right. Oh, that's fair. Like I read it like, Oh God, Lewis is so terrible. Pascal tries to warn Lewis. Lewis does not listen. So Pascal tries to, uh, you know, warn Ellie or, or I guess more, more specifically, like get Ellie to warn Lewis, possibly hoping that, hey, if I if I communicate through his daughter, he won't be able to write me off as just some kind of hallucination of his dreaming mind. And maybe that way, maybe that way he will understand that he's on a very bad path that he should not follow. And mm. but then but then like Lewis just kind of I forget exactly how he responds to Ellie, but it's definitely he's definitely not like, oh, yeah, I met that ghost. What you dreamt was totally real. he's he's very just sort of like it was a dream don't worry about it and when rachel gets a little suspicious because i as i recall she uh remembered the name uh pascal's name enough from like lewis telling her about how he had died and everything Mm -hmm. that when ellie is like slightly mispronouncing his name it does it does trigger something like like she recognizes that there's something there but lewis won't tell her either right um yeah yeah lewis is garbage and i think i think we're supposed to think that right i don't think i don't think stephen king was like under the impression he was writing a sympathetic protagonist no i don't i don't think so but he's garbage so i have a couple i have just like a little side segue about asking you about your experience reading this for the first time that is more of a I want to talk about Stephen King's writing style. Okay. Uh, asking you as an English major. 
Doesn't give me any special authority, but sure. There's two things that uh, Stephen King does in this book that are very Stephen King stylistic, like throughout many of the books that I've read of his. One of them is repeat phrases cutting in as intrusive thoughts constantly. Uh-huh. And and in this book, it's hey-ho, let's go, uh, Oz the Great and Terrible, and uh, Smucky the Cat. Yeah. That just, like, cut in all the time. And, and, and I always thought, especially in some other books where it's, it's used to very great effect to really depict the, the character who's thinking them going really having some some mental problems going on uh i wanted to know what you thought what you thought about that because i haven't seen that in a lot of other things just just how often he repeats these phrases yeah uh i mean repetition is uh often a very powerful tool for um emphasizing things or symbolizing things you know so like in this in this instance for example the uh, hey ho let's go is usually the thing that pops up when lewis is like going off the deep end right when he mm-hmm. when he knows he is doing something he shouldn't be doing on some level and certainly this repetition you know makes makes all the much more sense when uh, the book is as fixated on the inner life of a particular character as this book is it's not it's not literally a first person narrative but it is always tuned directly into lewis's brain so yeah i thought that stuff was um for a recognizable reason that you know was identifiable and effective yeah i mean i i like him i i like when stephen king does that i was just i was just curious what what you thought about it yeah no that's that's repetition is is absolutely a thing it kind of makes them like these little like micro memes yeah in specific books well, and they become they become shorthand for bigger ideas. Like Oz, Oz the Great and Terrible was a uh, or terrible. I have a hard time pronouncing terrible. I tried. I tried in the outline to spell that. Yeah, I no, I, I I remember that it was W's, but I just my mouth doesn't <laughs> want to uh, uh, say terrible. My mouth didn't want to do it either. <laughs> but like that, that becomes a shorthand for the power of the cemetery, right? Yeah. So it's also just a way that like he can talk about the power of the cemetery without constantly being like the dark force behind the pet cemetery that manipulates people like a puppeteer every other sentence. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that, that totally, totally fine. The other thing that he does a lot, which I usually really enjoy is interruptions. So you mentioned already that it's felt like the scene where he is in the graveyard trying to go dig up gauge there are multiple sections where he just pauses the action especially in parts where the action is really ramping up and you just kind of want to see what happens and then he pauses it for some long tangent of a memory and like you know in the graveyard he goes on this uh, tangent about when he remembered working for his i want to say his uncle who ran a funeral home right and these conversations that they had about the times of year that people die 
He does this a lot in his books as he just cuts into the action with memories and stories. And uh, I always really enjoy them because they're usually very interesting and usually have something to do with the theme and are generally like if they're like a topic that is not necessarily Stephen King's purview are pretty well researched. Like he he talked with a number of uh, morticians and doctors and things about funeral practices and stuff to research this book. So these little factoids about times of year that people die, I'm sure are correct. <laughs> and even though it definitely like cuts into the action, it makes it, I think, a little bit more tense <laughs> and interesting. But these are those are the the intrusive thought repeat phrases and the interruptions with memories is something that Stephen King does a ton to add in more horror or more tension to his his horror stories. And I I just found that interesting. Uh, yeah, I think that the um, interruptions in scenes that are are maybe more focused on action sort of were. Generally, good ways to tune into how the character is feeling about the action going on, mm -hmm. which sometimes is, you know, more important than the action itself, right? It, it it is more interesting to know where Lewis's head is at when he's breaking into the uh, graveyard to dig up Gage than it is to know precisely how he scaled the fence, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I generally didn't mind them. I also found uh, that part of the reason I think I didn't mind them, I, I don't think it was a, I don't think it's a problematic tool, but I found that I just, the times when I was bored of the book were times when he was writing scenes of, I don't want to say action, but scenes where stuff was actually happening in the scenes when he was actually talking about getting into the graveyard, for example, I mostly was pretty tuned out. I was like, just, just let him get over the fence. I do not care. <laughs> Even though I feel like there's so much I could say about Stephen King, we could have multiple Stephen King episodes and I could fill up the entire time. But before we, we hop over to just talking about him a little bit, I just wanted to get a general sense of like, do you think you would have enjoyed it if you read it as a kid? What do you, what are your general thoughts on on this? Uh, if if I had somehow gotten over the fact that Slappy the Dummy was possibly <laughs> the scariest thing in the world. <laughs> Sorry. I don't think I would have enjoyed it very much. And I think that's because I don't think I would have enjoyed the amount of time spent on the mundane stuff that I just said I really liked. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, like, I, I think I kind of alluded to this as well when we talked about Caves of Steel, that when I first read that book and its sequels, I didn't necessarily, as a kid, get super into some of the lengthy digressions about, like, sociology and stuff that I now find, like, interesting stuff to think about. And I kind of feel the same about this book. I think that if I had read it as a kid, I would have been sitting there for long periods just being like, when is he going to bury the cat already? Just, like, bury the cat. And then I'd be mad if the cat didn't do anything except for kind of wander around and smell. <laughs> the, 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 thing, the thing that the extensive trip to the cemetery and how difficult it was to traverse the rocks and the little swampy area and stuff, 
the thing that it just made me think of every time was how the fuck is the two-year-old going to get back and know his way home? Yeah. I would have slept at the graveyard until the boy crawled out of the dirt and then helped carry him home because he's two. But no, he's magical, scary, murdered doll two-year-old, so he found his way back, apparently. Yeah. I wasn't too weirded out by Gage getting back on his own uh, because at that point I was just like, the cemetery is just magic. And and because he's a human, maybe he's possessed by a demon now or something, because that's sort of the conclusion I had come to from the the conversation about, I don't remember the name of this character either, but the one that... Timothy. The, yeah, the Judd Jud said, like, had been brought back many, many years prior mm-hmm. and just kind of, like, wandered around uh, uh, quoting the exorcist at people. And, like, telling everyone their secrets and stuff. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, you're cheating on you, you're cheating on you. It is. Yeah. And, 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 like, that stuff is, like, exactly, like, for example, the kind of stuff that the demon says in The Exorcist. <laughs> that sort of thing is a very commonly used way to sort of symbolize that or, or just sort of uh, guide what, what does a person possessed by a demon do, you know? So that's why I had that conclusion. And because by the end, he had not disabused me of this notion because he had offered no alternative. True. So I have a discussion question. Uh-huh. It took me a fair bit to figure out what the discussion question for this book could even be because everything I thought of was just incredibly morbid. Yeah. This is still morbid, but it is the most like PG morbid I could think of for this book. So if you were a pet, mm-hmm. what would be written on your pet cemetery marker a la Smucky the Cat? He was obedient. Mm. Mm. Brandon the Blah. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that's it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. Do I have to decide what kind of pet I would be? You don't, but you can for fun. It, sh- it should probably be a pun, but I'm not really sure what kind of pun. An easy pun, I imagine, because a child is probably making mm. the grave marker. Probably something like Brandon the Corn Snake. O, comma, rats. Because I died because <laughs> I was afraid of the rodents that they fed me. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is a thing that I saw a corn snake kind of go through once. Oh, no. Where just like the snake was just like huddled into a corner and there was a mouse just kind of like hanging out, doing minding his own business and had been in there for a while. Yeah, so Stephen King. I I really like Stephen King. Did you read the the foreword? I might have, but I don't recall. I probably did. Well, well, first off, how many books would you estimate Stephen King has written? Sixty-three. You looked that up. I did no such thing. You looked it up. I did not. It's sixty-four. Okay. Well. So in the in the forward for this book, he mentions the the inspiration for it, which, as you might guess, is, you know, main roads being or main country roads being horribly terrifying with their trucks. Mm -hmm. And also that um, when his daughter buried their cat, Smucky, she wrote Smucky, he was obedient. And his little note was Smucky wasn't in the least obedient. Of course, he was a cat. (laughs) 
But so he wrote this book and he ended up putting it away for a long time because he wrote it and he said, this is the scariest thing I've ever written. No one's going to want this. And he put it away. And it wasn't in this book's forward, but I think it was in the forward of another one. Like, I think maybe it was in the forward for Bag of Bones or something where he mentions that he always has several books on deck to be published at any given time. He just front loads a bunch of books. Um, so when publishers come asking for a new thing, he can just like, you know, hand them something. Um, and also it helps like if he front loads a bunch of stuff, if he has periods of writer's block. But uh, so this book ended up being in storage for a while um, until he needed to finish a contract with the publisher. And so he just handed them this and they edited it and it, it went out and, uh, you know, was very popular. Yeah. Well, I thought that was pretty interesting. Stephen King is an author who, uh, you know, he's had a very long career. He started in the 70s, uh, and he definitely has made many a goof in terms of representation and such. The aforementioned problematic depictions of Native American spirituality that is prevalent through many of his books as well. Um, and he also definitely leans way too heavily on the trope of the magical black person in The Stand and um, Green Mile stuff like that but the one thing i really like about him is that he is not aged into a say william shatner he has aged into a flaming liberal he's gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with jk rowling on twitter he is very politically active and he's acknowledged a lot of the missteps in writings that he's done which i really appreciate <laughs> I've 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 read interviews and such where he's just like, yeah, I should not have wrote I should not have written that, and I'm sorry. So I really like that about him. I while this book was definitely not my favorite Stephen King book ever, it's definitely in my lower lower echelon of Stephen King books, honestly. But I I I just really like him as a as a person. And I wanted to give a little side note because I knew that you read on writing. He actually he wrote that. He was recovering from being hit by a car while he was out walking. Yeah, I know. Um, he, uh, he talks about that a bit in the book as well. Oh, I didn't know. Um, I haven't read that one. <laughs> Maybe I should. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I found it. I found it good. Um, you know, he, he obviously is a whatever else you can say about Stephen King. And I, I have always found him when I've seen him in or, or in like interviews or whatever I've, I've always found him to seem like he's a pretty pretty decent dude but whatever you can say about like his writing love it or hate it he is prolific um mm. and that can be like like output uh certainly for me is arguably the hardest part of writing i think certainly is for many people so yeah i mean he has he has some handy insights and anecdotes if you're curious how he does what he does. It's not like a, it's not a, 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 a dry like instruction manual. There's a lot of personal anecdote and sort of uh, getting at the way he thinks about writing and stuff. And, and, and certainly some of how maybe his outlook changed as a result of his real life, you know, near brush with death. Because he was severely uh, injured. Um, yeah. 
Like like it was definitely near death car accident. Yeah. And also it it really it kind of struck me that it mirrored Pascal. Because mm-hmm. Pascal was hit by a car when he was out. Yeah, like I knew that this book was well before that accident had ever happened, but it did kind of strike me intended, <laughs> I guess. Oh no. That this book in particular was like very anti-car in its way. Not like not like he was railing against the automobile industry or anything, but like cars, uh and cars in a general sense of any sort of motorized vehicle that drives on road don't look great in this book like they're always just attached to tragedy they're they're arguably like more pernicious monsters than the possibly demon possessed zombie toddler that kills people with a scalpel <laughs> so yeah i thought i thought that that was sort of it almost made it seem like if if they made a movie about stephen king's life and then they were like, oh, yeah, Pet Cemetery has all of these people who die by getting hit by cars or all of these important characters who die by being hit by cars. And like it's really fixated on this road and how often the trucks just go barreling through there and it's dangerous. I'd be like that foreshadowing for the actual events later in his life couldn't possibly be real. Some Hollywood writer thought of that because they thought it was cute. Well, it's pretty interesting that, you know, this man who is known for writing some of the scariest stuff of our time, when he actually got hurt and had to like convalesce and was writing something, he doesn't write something scary. He just writes a book about the writing process. Yeah. Because he already wrote stuff like about car accidents. He he didn't need to revisit that. I also definitely want to take a second to like praise one of his non-horror books. I think my favorite Stephen King book is Hearts in Atlantis, which isn't horror at all. I I may have you read that at some point. I quite like that movie, so I am on board. It's got a little bit of mystery, a little bit of like hints of potentially supernatural stuff, but no, yeah. no outright monsters or anything. Yeah, I, I will. I will say that you know, having now read a Stephen King novel. I am at the point where I'm like, well, actually, yes, they're long, but his writing is digestible enough that I didn't find that the length felt as much as as I thought it would, or that I I maybe find with the average novel um, of of that sort of length. So I'm not I'm not opposed potentially to to looking out at some. Other Stephen King books, even just on my own. It's it's difficult to say which ones I should recommend to you because Hearts in Atlantis is just a wonderful book. Yeah. Bag of Bones is, in my opinion, the scariest Stephen King book that I've read so far. I had to read it all in one sitting, and I'm looking at it on my bookshelf, and it is as thick as the stand. It it took me like almost an entire 24-hour period to read that book. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything other than sometimes get up to grab like a glass of water. But I was so terrified I couldn't go to bed. Yeah. And I was in my 20s. So. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, I may I may very well. I'm still intimidated by the length of, of like the stand and stuff. Um, certainly. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some some merit to, to you know, the classics like it and the stand. I so it's, it's hard for me to tell you which ones to read. <laughs> well, we're creeping on an hour and a half. Uh, yeah. 
and and while I feel like I could talk about this more, I am going to slide us along to the rating. Just how many out of five giant peaches would you rate this book? Hmm. I mean, I I knew this question was coming, and I still don't have a great. I also just don't remember what I've been rating things. So now I'm like yeah. sitting here, like, am I going to start getting really inconsistent? Um. I, I don't know. I I think I'm at like a three and a half, maybe. I I, I enjoyed it. Um, by and large, I enjoyed it more often than I than I didn't. You're so generous. Yeah, I, don't I had know. so many. I had so many gripes with it that I was sitting here thinking, like, is a one too high? I'm gonna go with one point five because I know how much better Stephen King can be. I know how much scarier Stephen King can be, and there was so much nonsense that i i just didn't feel like lent itself to the horror yeah and also i found the sex scenes in this book incredibly cringy i he can do better to be honest um forgot there were sex scenes until you just said it there it was he can do better (laughs) yeah i mean my my rating may be somewhat influenced by the fact that i was expecting this book to be a chore Mm. just you know like i said because of of the reasons that i had conjured over the course of my life for just never reading a stephen king book uh, besides on writing and so i might i might be forgiving of it because it already had the deck stacked against it to a certain degree uh, when I began, because I was expecting it to just be kind of a slog to get through. It has the deck stacked against it, like the other way for me, in that I've read so much other way better Stephen King that I'm judging it against that instead of just in a general sense. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, fear not, dear listeners, we will lay off the multiple hundred page long books for just a little while. Um. My next pick will be very gentle. Uh, what is your next pick, Brandon? Well, since since over the course of this episode, we uh, buried the podcast in the, in the pet cemetery at the beginning, you see, and <laughs> and uh, while we were talking, it came back. So it's back. This is not our last episode. But it came back weird. It came back weird, which, which means that we are going to read Animorphs uh, number one, The Invasion is the name of that one, by K.A. Applegate. Uh, one of my major childhood influences is that series. Um, I loved that series a lot, and I devoured them as quickly as I could. I'm really excited about this because my very good friend, Nick, thank you so much, Nick, dropped off a cardboard box with every Animorphs book in it for me. I have to give them back eventually, but I'm, I'm ready for this. Yeah. And the nice thing is that having physical copies, you can you can like enjoy the flipbook action. Flipbook action? Mm-hmm. Oh, what? Anyhow, uh, yeah. the the music used in this podcast was licensed by Epidemic Sound. Transcripts are generated by Otter.ai. Do you have a question or a comment for the team? I I, I don't know why I say the team. It's just two of us. We're a team. We're okay. We're a team. Teammate. Uh, well, regardless, um, you can find us on Twitter at 
dog ate my book pod and on Instagram at my dog ate my book report or by emailing us at dog ate my book report at gmail.com. We would be super excited to know what books you loved growing up or if you want to yell at me about my thoughts on Stephen King. Yeah, definitely tell us what books you loved growing up that you should not have been allowed to read. Yes. <laughs> Make me feel like I'm not alone in being yeah. potentially damaged yeah. by reading these books. Or if you also think slapping the dummy is the scariest thing in the world, <laughs> let us know that too. Uh, because that will make me feel not alone. <laughs>